Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of the Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. guys asked for it so this is my podcast all about record keeping for your training um i did not used to be this person if you guys think it's easy for me to keep records you are incorrect um i learned how to keep records when i attempted to train felix a running dog walk and i say attempted because that project is still a work in progress, will continue to be a work in progress, I think. And I have recently kind of gotten back into the groove of maybe talking to him about that project. But the reason that I learned to keep records doing that is because it's kind of a tedious training task that you will not get through, I don't think, without good records. And I was in an online class that required me to record keep basically. So the videos I would submit needed there to be kind of subtitles with records right there on the video. And so I learned how to do it. Um, It's not, I don't think it's fun for anybody. (laughs) But here's the thing, I'm kind of impatient. And when I embark on a training task, I want it done as fast as possible. I don't like to spend a long time on any given training task. And when you record keep, you get done faster. And the reason you do is because you know exactly what each session needs to look like and you know when things are starting to go wrong before you would otherwise. So questions that I got um, had to do with basically what are you writing in these training journals that you have? And each of my dogs have separate journals. mostly just because I'm a nerd (laughs) and wanted them to have cute journals that match them. Um, And so I'm just going to talk about my process. I'm going to talk about what's in my journals and then hopefully convince you to keep some records. So here's the process. Number one, film your training sessions. You will not take accurate records if you don't film because you'll be trying to work from memory. And if you want to know how faulty the human memory is, just Google how faulty is the human memory and you will find out it's actually pretty terrifying um, how bad it is. It's actually terrifying that eyewitness accounts are ever utilized um, in the court of law because of how bad it is. But anyway, that's another tangent for another day. So the first thing you do is you film. The second thing you do is you upload to video or you view it. So I do put everything on YouTube. It's mostly unlisted. It's mostly just for me. The reason I do that is because I kind of use YouTube as like my storage for my videos. Um, Or you can just view it and then delete it if you want to. So I upload, then I view. While I'm viewing, I take notes. And here are the notes that I put. And these are the notes that are in my training journals. Number of reps, 
number of successful attempts and number of failures. And then I do a quick math problem. Again, you guys, you know this works if Sarah's doing math. So just that should be the reason for everybody to go give this a try is that if Sarah's doing any math problem, it means that the positive reinforcement behind this process is high. So then I do a simple math problem and get the percentage rate of success versus failure. And then I take the probably the most important note of all is I write down what to do next time. That's what's going to expedite your training so immensely because you don't waste any time. You just pop open the journal, see what you wrote down for what to do next time. And then that's what you go do for your training. You don't have to agonize over what am I training today? What's it going to look like? What happened last time? Did I, did I actually get 10 successful reps or did I not? All of these are really important questions. So I write down what to do next time. And that's actually huge. Um, that's a big, that's a big part of it for me. And then some more general things that I might include would be details about what went well and what didn't. So when I'm, I'm taking those hash marks as I'm watching the video of success and failure, I'm paying attention to the antecedents surrounding the successful attempts and the failure attempts and seeing if I see a pattern or a difference there. And I'm going to include that. Um, again, that's where that what to do next time note comes in handy because you know, let's say I review the video and at a certain point, um, it, you know, my relative to my position, my dog cannot do a backside jump on verbal cue alone. I'm going to want to know exactly what is that point. I might draw myself a little picture or something like that and say from here forward, there was failure, but from here back, there wasn't. And that's a really important thing to know. Or maybe if you're talking about obedience, maybe your dog gets the right scent article in certain positions in the pile and not others. That's something you want to know. That's something you want to write down and then work towards having more success on. Um, and then, so just generally, why do I do this? Because like I said, it expedites your training. Your training projects will go much faster this way. This is working smarter and not harder. And that's something I am always, always interested in is working smarter and not harder. I recently told a client the majority of her dog training time should actually be spent in this process, not in training the dog itself. Can you do it the opposite if you want to? Yes, you can. You can spend a long time on each of your projects and not take any notes. I did that forever because I didn't want to take notes. I wanted to train dogs. Now my life is busier. I'm a busy person. That's why I do this. The excuse that everybody has is they're too busy to do this. I do this now because I'm too busy to waste minutes training, um, you know, any longer than I actually have to. It's really, really important that you understand that I do this because I'm now a super busy professional that can only allocate a certain amount of time training dogs every week. Um, and so being busy, being a busy person or a highly scheduled person, you need this more than other people do. Actually, you need this badly. 
And then I really, really love knowing very early on in the process if something's not working. And I'm going to know that based on my percentage rate. So if I had a good session, I'm going to have a relatively high rate of success. If I'm ready to, you know, make things harder, the general rule of thumb, and I think this originates from Bob Bailey, is kind of 80% success means proceed, make it harder. Um, I'm going to say I don't follow that to a T, but it's a general good rule to, to keep in mind. And if I look at my success rate over several sessions and I see it dropping significantly when I have not made significant changes, I know something is not working. Or if my success rate is generally speaking staying the same, again, I know that it's not working. I need to change something if things are not getting better. The other thing, which is something that I just feel that people don't really talk about, um, and that's okay, is that when you're training, you shouldn't actually be messing around with a bunch of sessions that aren't working for you. So your first session, and I learned this from Ken Ramirez, um, I learned this phrasing especially from him, your first session should be an information gathering session. So when you're going to go train something, you call your first session out an information gathering session. It should be short and to the point, and you should maybe try out a few different antecedent arrangements, see what you get, and then end it, go to the drawing board, watch the video, see what worked, see what didn't, and then you know your path forward. Um, I just did this for Felix's formal retrieve, which is a project that we're about to get started on for him. Um, I just did an info gathering session, and now I know kind of what direction I'm going to take in the next few sessions to uh, work on that behavior. Your sessions should generally be um, getting better, getting better, and then maybe you make something harder and you have a dip in that success rate, but then it climbs back up. That means that you're doing it right. The other thing is that you shouldn't really train, I don't think, the same thing every single day. So I try, do make an effort to train my dogs at least every other day, um, if not every day. When I'm being my best self, they get trained every day. <laughs> um, when I'm having an insane week for whatever reason, I try to prioritize. Kind of they get a decompression walk one day and they get training the next day. Um, both every day would be totally ideal for both of us, but that's not life. That's not realistic most of the time. So I need to volley what projects I'm working on. I find that this actually makes things go faster on every project. So if, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, I work on maybe my dog walk with Felix. And then on Tuesday and Thursday with Felix, I maybe work on some obedience and fitness skills. That works better than trying to work on all the stuff every single day, or even trying to work on maybe say the dog walk every single day. When I do that, beyond a shadow of a doubt, each time um, I do that, my success is just much higher than it is if I work on things every single day. And I know that because I have the data. And breaking it down like that and knowing what your percentages are will really help you to know if you need to change something or not.
So that's it, you guys. There's no magic. That's what I do. I do have a new app for record keeping specifically for agility training, but I'm not really ready to talk about it yet. So kind of hang tight. I'm going to talk to my patrons about that first. So if you're not on Patreon yet, there's some information at the end of the episode about that that you should hear. I'm going to chat with them about the app first, maybe get a few of them to try it so that we can all kind of come together and give a real um, kind of review of it. But so hang tight on that. We will we'll come to it. And now I'm just going to hit a few Patreon questions. The first one's from Terry Abel. Uh, she says, ways to help a 16-month-old get through screaming my turn, my turn, my turn phase when work seems imminent. He's always been a vocal pup, and now he sometimes yelps all the way to local agility slash doc field. If he's on leash, he won't take food, where, and he won't take food, we move back. If he will eat cookie scatters, rhythmic cookie toss, etc., those things are helping, but that's if the dog eats. Um, and she goes on to say that in a crate at a facility or a crate in the car at an event, he's quite the screamer. Um, I'm working with this making small steps in the right direction. She doesn't really mention how she's working on it, but um, goes on to ask, I'm wondering how much of this is age related and could, you know, he could grow out of, but not, she's not exactly happy having him rehearse it while she works on it, which is very smart. Um, she also mentioned that he's a small, agile, intact, standard poodle, curious, eager to work, uh, pretty connected, overall a real delight. And I love it when people kind of add some positives about their dogs in the end because they're like, hey, I have this huge problem, but just so you know, this dog is great. I, I love it when people want me to know for sure that they know their dog is great, which I assume you know that if you listen to my podcast, but I, I love it. So I love hearing that. Here's the deal. And this is a frustrating answer to a lot of people. You cannot expect them to quote unquote wait for work until they know how to wait for work. And you've actually put the cart before the horse a little bit. The fact that he is even in these environments before he's capable of walking, you know, calmly from point A to point B and Probably, I'm going to guess, he used to be capable of it, but he learned how exciting everything is. Um, you know, so now, but he's still in that environment and he's showing these behaviors. That's where you're having the problem. This is really common for people is they, their puppy is great, their puppy is fine, then their puppy realizes how fun sports are, and their puppy goes crazy, and they keep trying to put their puppy in that environment, even though they're crazy. The second, you guys, they get crazy is the second you stop putting them at that in that environment and you go back to the drawing board because you did not reinforce the behaviors that you needed to reinforce adequately enough. Behaviors be meaning walk next to me on a loose leash from A to B, even if B is very exciting. Wait quietly in a crate, wait quietly on a dog bed. These are things that we gotta put our work into and we don't because you know why it's so much sexier to just train agility <laughs> so nobody does it um nobody works on stillness and calm and waiting um because they think they've got it because their puppy looks pretty good but then their puppy learns how fun agility is and then you're a little bit screwed so you're not screwed for life <laughs> but you do have to Stop, try, stop, like you said, stop having the dog rehearse this behavior, which means remove him from the environment. He just can't be in that environment for now. Um, now, that alone, not going to fix it because 
he will not mature out of this. In fact, he'll probably get worse if you allow it to keep happening. You said you're working on it. I don't know how you're working on it, but the fact that you said you're making some progress tells me that you're doing a good job, whatever it is. I would put a pin in agility training and dock diving. I would stop doing those things and keep working on this. So for instance, don't enter an agility trial, but go to it. Put the dog in the crate in the car, park as far away as you need to for him to not be screaming in the car. Um, use a pet tutor or a manners mind or something like that to reinforce quiet in the car. And, you know, set up a video system so that you don't have to be there shoving food in the crate. So I like the app Presence, which can allow you to watch your dog on one smart device. So like set up a tablet facing the crate in the car and then watch the video, watch the tablet on your phone elsewhere and reinforce with that remote feeder or something like that. Work really hard on loose leash walking from A to B and make B gradually more exciting. It can at first just be um, a treat pouch or a bowl of food that's sitting on a chair that you're gonna walk over to and feed the dog, right? And then it can be a toy and then it can be wrapping an agility wing and then it can be a jump and a tunnel. So walking nicely from A to B, then getting to do the fun thing. Now, this is all very cliff notes because fixing this problem would require, you know, more work than what I'm describing. I'm, I'm not giving you a full behavior modification plan here because for one thing, I can't in the podcast and for another, that's kind of what I do for a living. So um, I'm not going to give you that full plan right here in the podcast. However, these are the bits and pieces. And the main thing is that you've got to remove him from this environment now so that you can work on gradually bringing him back into the environment. If he is allowed to scream and then get what he wants, like playing agility, he will continue to scream about agility. I also have a rule that if the dog can't eat, you mentioned if he can eat, this will work. If the dog can't eat, the dog doesn't get to play, period. Um, I ask them if they can eat usually while they're in the car. I ask them if they can eat as soon as they're out of the car. And I ask them if they can eat multiple times before letting them play the game. And I have border collies who are really notoriously bad eaters, especially when things are exciting, they'd rather not eat. Um, my dogs learn that they they kind of have to if they want to go play agility they've got to show me that they can eat so and then terry i hope you've taken my course worked up if you haven't um it is running in the october term at fenzy dog sports academy at the time of this recording it is open for registration but it will close for registration october 15th and i'm not sure when this episode is coming out so if this episode airs in time go ahead and go grab that if you haven't already if you do already have that course in your library, go revisit it. Revisit the uh, worked up protocol, the arousal testing and soothing, and do that as well around the exciting environments. And then one more, another question, this is from Kristen. She says, let's talk about jackpotting and or using stronger reinforcement for correct choices and less strong reinforcement for quote unquote effort when that effort is not the correct choice. So she's kind of describing um, 
what I call never wrong, sometimes more right, which is something I will do with dogs that kind of don't trust the training process. Um, a lot of times I'll feed them for every response, but I'll feed them something really, really good for the, the extra great responses basically. And it totally works. Um, jackpotting in general is just kind of a form of differential reinforcement. That means you're going to get paid uh, for everything. It doesn't necessarily alone mean that you're going to get paid for everything, but let's assume that we're going to pay the dog for all efforts and then we're going to jackpot. So we're going to pay extra for the really good efforts. Here's what you have to know in order for that to be effective, the jackpot needs to be definitely better than the other reinforcers. And the other thing that you need to know is usually all people do when they're attempting to jackpot is eat up time. So what that means is if I sit down and I've got, you know, I'm going to do 10 reps of a, of a behavior and I do 10 reps each for one treat. Okay. I've got that session or let's say I'm going to get one rep of, of a really great behavior and feed 10 treats. So same amount of treats, but which one is more effective? the one where you got 10 paid reps in versus the other one. So in order for the jackpot to work, you'd need to have 10 reps of 10 treats. So 10, 10 jackpots within your session of maybe 20, right? Um, or 20, that would be 50% success rate. So probably not um, in your session of, of, you know, 12 or 15 reps, 10 of those reps need to be jackpotted. That means that your session is going to take considerably longer than the other session that had maybe 12 to 15 reps and the incorrect reps just did not get fed and the other reps just did get fed one cookie. That's still your more efficient training session. So you need, you need to think about that. Um, I tend not to think about just reinforcing because the dog tried, but I tend to set up a pattern of reinforcement in all of my sessions that reinforces the dog for the reset portion of the exercise. So an example would be if I'm training weave poles, let's say I've got fresh pet in my training pouch and then I've also got the big giant um, Costco frozen meatballs. My dog does a correct set. I'm going to mark and I'm going to throw that meatball. And every time he comes back up to my side for the next rep, I'm going to give him a piece of fresh putt. When he does the pulls incorrectly, I am not going to mark and throw the meatball. I'm just going to ask him to come to my side and feed him the little bite of fresh pet and start over. Is that reinforcing effort? I suppose you could call it that. But what I'm going to say is it's reinforcing the return to side. It's reinforcing the reset piece, which is a piece that you need to keep strong and is valid to reinforce every time. But a lot of people would say this is jackpotting because the dog got two treats for the correct response and one treat for the incorrect response. If your dog sees that kind of pattern of reinforcement, that kind of system often enough, your dog will totally get it. They'll understand that they missed out on the meatball and they just got the fresh pet and they will try something else. And that's actually exactly how I trained Felix's weave poles. Um, okay. So one last patron question. It's a little bit of a heavy one. This is from Bridget. And she says, how do you decide to retire or stop competing with a reactive dog? Does it depend on the sport? Well, Bridget, I think we would need to know exactly your definition of reactive, but 
most of the time that involves some kind of aggressive behavior. People get worried about the word aggressive. They kind of think it's got worse stigma attached than the word reactive. I think a lot of times reactive is used as a euphemism. But these are aggressive behaviors that we are describing. They're not necessarily, you know, dangerous or, you know, grounds for euthanasia. Like, that's not what I'm saying, but they are aggressive behaviors. And they're getting in the way of you competing successfully, it sounds like. I'm always going to say, is this environment one in which my dog can actually cope? Because if they can cope and you're not seeing the reactions, then you're probably fine. If you're seeing reactions every time you take this dog to compete, I'm gonna say it's not fine. I'm not gonna say that means retire or stop competing. But what needs to be done is you stop competing in order to work on the reactivity and ease the dog back into the sport. So you shouldn't be seeing the problem. Um, I've competed in agility with some kind of barky lungy dogs. I've also competed with a dog that I would describe as you know, straight up dog aggressive, almost maybe on a pathological level. My biggest compliment was always when people told me they had no idea he had a problem like that. Basically, if you're gonna be competing with a dog that you would call quote unquote reactive, what I wanna know is that the other competitors wouldn't label your dog as such, because if they wouldn't, because they don't know, then you're doing just fine. Um, and then of course it could affect your dog's performance. Some dogs are just too uncomfortable in, the, in that environment, because remember that aggression is a distance seeking behavior. So they want distance and space from, it's usually towards other dogs um, when people are still trying to compete. And so they're seeking that distance and then you're asking them to run around those things that really kind of scare them. It's like asking a person to work in a snake pit when they're afraid of snakes. So always think about uh, whether or not if your dog could choose, they would choose to compete. And I, you know, that's a bigger question <laughs> for probably another podcast and another time, because I think that's something we should all be asking. And I think we don't because most of us kind of don't want to know the answer. So that's it for those patron questions this week. Thank you guys for submitting them. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.